Hello and welcome to Off the Record. This is the 50-something episode and we have a very special guest on the show today, our third guest, and his name is Mike Mowry. Hi, Mike. Hello, Zach. Uh, you're replacing Jesse for the rest of the show. Is that accurate? Sounds about right. I'm sure that my skill set could completely replace his. Ah, I mean, you. Pro- I mean, I think you also like dance music, which fits well. It's a problem to me, but it fits well in the in the replacement category. I think. The question is, what subjects oh, will get will, will get you cursing uh, as much as me uh, that are Taylor Swift in Five Seconds of Summer? Yeah, that that is a good question. I don't know. I mean, Jesse, I know that uh, Zach likes to talk about your age, but being older than you i've really i've really mellowed out in my years you know i have too but there's still some things that really uh, set me off um i can't yeah, imagine can't being imagine. older than jesse so mike i don't even i don't even know <laughs> <laughs> nice well zach maybe one day you'll make it this far maybe probably not but maybe stay away from those peanuts okay thank you fair enough um, I, I heard zach's always around peanuts uh, Mike is a, the founder of Outer Loop Management, and he manages bands. Mike, am I allowed to say some of the bands you manage? Sounds good to me. Mike manages bands uh, Refused. I've never heard of them, but I'm told that they mattered. And um, <laughs> no, another, no past tense there. Matter, mattered, mattered. Um, and another popular band as well called Silverstein um, that are on Rise Records. And then a bunch of other bands and under his company like Crown the Empire, Set It Off, many more. There's a lot of bands, Mike. There's a lot of bands. How many bands are in the company? You, you probably can't even count them. Uh, I get that report in around 516 every day. Because <laughs> you know, at the, at the you know, massive operation that Outer Loop Management is, there's always bands coming and going, Zach. Always bands come and go. And you have several people under you as well, and we'll probably get into that later on in the episode. Um, how long have uh, you known Jesse, Mike? Uh, I think this is the first time that I'm actually conversing with him, unless uh, he wants to correct me. He, I, I believe... I, I think I think that is true, but it's funny because I feel like I know you because I've been listening to so many podcasts before <laughs> them. You know, you know, like when I tuned into Edgeland, despite my extreme lack of edge, I, I hear you on there. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I've been making the rounds on the podcast circuit. I was going to say when we were talking about replacements that I think the three of us all have very um, unique and distinct voices. Very, true. and there, and therefore, I could easily replace Jesse with just having a very uh, unique voice. And, and if we get Finn McKenty on here, the whole thing's complete. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know if uh, I haven't told either of you this, but when I first found out about this podcast i was trading some stuff like some podcasts with johnny minardi and i do a bunch of producer management with him and we were bonding over our love for cereal um or at least just kind of the yeah i'd say the um obsession with it as it was coming out and so we started trading a whole bunch of stuff and he mentioned that this one was done by Zach. Uh, he mentioned Zach from Property of Zach, and I downloaded it and I listened to it, and I was like, "Johnny, there is no chance in hell I'm going to be able to get through this entire episode with that <laughs> with that kid's voice ringing in my ears." <laughs> Incredible. Well, great. And now we're now we're friendly, but wonderful. Thank you. Exactly. So, 
And the first time that I met you, Zach, I was, I was texting Johnny and, and telling him what a, a, a unique and surreal experience it was. You know, you were that guy with the voice that, you know, was now here live in person. So you're kind of, you, you might be a little bit of a rock star. I don't know. Here. That sounds like an ego hit, not an ego boost. A lot of that sounds like an insult, but I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, backhanded compliments are one of my many specialties. Uh-huh. I, I think that's what I get from being a hardcore kid. I, I was going to say, you know, that really, if there's any trait that comes from 90s hardcore, it's like backhanded compliments are like a true trait of it. Yeah, the thickest sarcasm that ever was, uh, you know, usually allows that to to shine through. So anyway, Zach, yeah, it was nice to hang out with you. It, it was. <laughs> and we've done that a couple times now. We, we have, um, except when I come to D.C., you are always on a plane elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so on this episode, we thought kind of like the episode we did with uh, Jeff from Run for Cover, we thought it would be uh, nice to just go through some general questions with Mike about his career and then to also have a conversation take us elsewhere. But um, Mike, just from speaking with you and, you know, actually, I was educated by Mike once in a Drexel classroom not too many weeks ago. Um, you, you came through management, uh, not through management. You, you were in bands, I think, and then tour managed and, and ended up here, um, which and I think had, is, and had a label and had a label, uh, which I think is how a lot of people end up in management by, uh, coming from a different avenue in music. Did you expect to ever get and to settle into management or was it going to just be another stepping stone no, for you? I, I never... I, I never really did. I mean, it's kind of just been one sort of opportunity presented itself to me after another. And when the timing felt right for each opportunity to, you know, uh, be embraced. Um, yeah, I kind of just went with each of those things. So what was the opportunity that took you from being band guy and, you know, let's be honest, putting out hardcore records in the 1990s is not exactly a truly real job, no matter how much time it took to stuff seven inches into plastic back then. Um, what did present itself that took you this way? Was there any defining moment? It was really about the glue stick more than the plastic <laughs> bag. I mean, that's how we got really <laughs> DIY was having the uh, come over and help glue the covers together parties. Well, no, I think a, a, a pretty good example. So in the you know early to mid nineties, I was putting out records I was going to school in California. We put on shows at our house. We're doing things very, very, very DIY. And um, I finished college with an environmental science degree and was trying to find, you know, the way that I could, my path within that career. And I was, I was coming up a little bit empty. There was a few hurdles. A lot of people in that field were getting master's degrees and they were a step or two ahead of me. And I was going to get a, a, I was going to do an internship at an environmental law firm. And that same week, Dave, the guitar player from Botch called me and said, Hey, we're about to head out on a tour. Do you want to come with us? So as a guy that had toured before and traveled extensively and kind of has this wanderlust, I said, you bet. And I kind of, I pretty much turned, that was the first step towards really moving towards a, that nomadic lifestyle that led me into a band. Um, and from the band that then led me into tour management and from tour management that led me into management. A common trajectory, I would say. 
Yeah, I think so. As Zach pointed out, I think a lot of people in management do come from having some other skill set that they view, you know, that hopefully the industry deems worthy in this day and age where touring is such a significant component of a band's existence. I think a lot of us former tour managers have found a place to continue to advise them. And so, excuse me, so many of the skill sets that a skill sets that a tour manager needs to employ are so relevant in getting things done, finding solutions, all of those types of things that really do help in the managerial sphere. So I have a question as, um, so my father, for example, went to school for, um, American history, but then went into advertising. And you have a degree in environmental science. We talked to so many kids who were going through the college thing, and then they decide they may want to do music. Has environmental science ever had any bearing on what you do today? And is there anything they could learn from how different... Because if you hear environmental science and you think band manager, you think, God, like, what the hell does that have to do with each other? But I think there's always something to draw from most of the time. Yeah, I mean, the river coefficient of you know pollutants going into <laughs> the water has absolutely no bearing on management unless a band rents an RV and accidentally dumps their waste in a, you know, which does happen um, in a spot that it is not meant for it to be dumped. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because as I'm doing the management and I'm also doing some of the educational stuff with um, Kevin Lyman's, the entertainment Institute to me, what college seems to do for a lot of people is A, allow them to have some time to mature, and B, allow them to really figure out how to do things. College does require showing up on time every once in a while. It does require working in groups every once in a while. It does require turning things in and turning them in on time. And so I think that is a huge component of why, as an employer, uh, not with any exclusivity, but I, I tend to find that the people who have been through that process work a little bit better for me. That's interesting because, uh, well, what do you, how do you feel about then programs like a music industry program? I think it's great. I, I think it's really interesting that that's even available. And so we many get people, questions but, a lot from uh, listeners if it's worth it, if. Uh, instead, you should take a business degree or something. That's something Jesse and I have talked about a lot where uh, I am in a music industry program for two more weeks. Um, and I would advise people not to take a music industry program, actually. Yeah, and, and without being in the middle of it, I can't necessarily comment. One of the reasons why I enjoy going to those programs is I think that it helps give people a bit more of a realistic uh, expectation and of, of what you know being in the industry involves, especially at the level that we're on, which is still relatively grassroots. I mean, developmental developing artists is what our company really thrives in. So I think that getting the knowledge, and again, I don't know how developed the Drexel program is and some of the other ones, but getting a lot of that knowledge so you can go and speak intelligently about the business very early on, I can imagine would be somewhat beneficial. Sure. To me, where college is like a benefit for someone who's hoping to work in music is that you get, you get a four-year pass to, you know, a uh, 
assuming that you may not have to pay all of your college bills or don't have to work like a typical job, you know, that you know you can get at least minimum wage at, it's a good four years to try a bunch of things and to try to get ahead of, you know, just starting out in a potential career path after college where, uh, you know, you you could you could intern at a different place if you live in a city where there's a lot of music things happening on for every term for four years, right? Like that's feasible, and that's really beneficial, I would imagine, to starting you know potentially working and being paid a following graduation. Um, I'd be curious. So you, but you are saying that you like to hire people who have a college degree, whereas like for example, I would my first job post second job post college was with Alan Douches at West Side, West West Side Music, and he actually likes to hire people who don't have college degrees because he thinks it gives them bad expectations. Yeah, which I think could make sense, and, and, and I understand why he would say something like that. I also think that the spheres that he and I are in are probably a little bit different, mm-hmm. um, although not completely different, but... And this has been through a lot of trial and error. I've had, and it could just be, it's not like I hire... 10 people a year, hopefully I only hire, you know, one every couple of years because the team that we've built is relatively solid. But I did have a number of younger people come in and work for me who I don't think their expectations were incredibly high, but I also don't think that they had the skills necessary to manage bands you know, nowadays it's so easy for young people to hop right in and maybe it's always been this way, but it's to me, from what I see, it's really easy for a lot of young people to hop right in and say, okay, I'm managing when they are managing some component of the band's business. Oftentimes it's their social media mm-hmm. or something of that nature that doesn't require the wide-eyed, inclusive view of everything that totals what I think a manager should do. So can you expand on that wide-eyed, inclusive view? Well, sure. It's a very holistic approach. It's getting in with the band and helping them set their goals and making sure that their goals are realistic and then managing not only their expectations, but serving all of the people building a team if they don't have one, i.e. an agent, a label, a merchandise company, a publisher, an attorney, a business manager. And not all bands have all of those things right from the start, but then it's managing each and every one of those pieces of, you know, members of the team. And so, and dealing with being ahead of the problems, looking out and seeing what problems may come from a given situation and trying to get ahead of those, as well as when the really interesting problems come up, you know, which Zach, when you sat in the class that I was speaking at, a problem emerged right then and there, it's having the maturity and the life experience to know how to deal with so much of, of the you know, problems that really can make or break a band. Mm -hmm. So you're, but so in general, you're looking for, you like to work with people that are able to work in multi-levels of uh, like kind of the real world, like whether it's a crisis or whether it's uh, being in a meeting or whether it's going out and uh, having a drink with someone to, you know, talk or uh, mingle, whatever, like working with people that are multifunctional. As well as, I mean, make no mistake, I I do not think that a college education is required to do what 
I do. I also, I mean, one of my best friends in the entire world dropped out of school in high school. And, you know, he's one of the smartest people that I know. So it's not as if I, without fail, hold this line. It's just been in my experience with what I'm doing. But, you know, it's a really good point. One of the issues that we run into all the time with younger people, and it's not to say it doesn't happen with older people, and I've had to figure out my own strategy is, but like, what do you, what do you, how do you engage your own social media? Are you posting things that, are bragging because, you know, you've had some opportunity for an artist and therefore you're associating yourself with it and it's completely tacky or are you doing things like, you know, engaging in behaviors that probably shouldn't be public knowledge if you're going to represent a client. And so there's a lot of stuff like that. Like you said, Zach, sitting in meetings, uh, being professional, being able to interact with the people in the business that do that do the business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny you mentioned like how you carry yourself, I guess. I get in trouble a lot on social media because I share my opinions of things that should not be uh, shared potentially if I disagree with someone because that could have an adverse effect on the bands I technically work for fully. Um, and that's something I, I struggle with still. I try to get better at it and I, I hope to continue to get better at it, but it's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, th- and I think that there's a balance in that, you know, there, you need to be able, you're human and we live in an age where, you know, social media is part of all of our lives for the most part. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having an opinion, but yeah, it really depends on how you act and react when, you know, if you just state something that's not offensive to anyone, but it's an, it's an intelligent opinion. That's one thing. If people engage you and you start to react in ways that aren't becoming of a professional, okay, that becomes a problem. Right. And that reflects, that reflects on those that you work with ultimately. Yeah. And you know, nobody's perfect. We all do things and that's sort of been, you know, recurring theme recently within, especially the warp tour world or people that are doing things and, and screwing up. And the one thing that, you know, I've had to reiterate to myself and to others is look, nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there's extremes and there's things that need to be handled in a particular way, but we all screw up. It's about, do we learn from that mistake? Mm-hmm. I think it's that well, there's also, I think a maturity that because like, you know, what I think is very funny. I follow, as we all know, I'm a political nerd and some of the best reporters I know who are, you know, early to mid thirties, I still see them posting totally inappropriate, irresponsible things to be posting on social media. And just cause you're great at something, just cause you're this, there is a thing that does discount you in this day and age. If you don't learn what's appropriate and not to say I'm the arbiter of this, I obviously post when I'm having too many drinks and enjoying a really lovely dinner all the time, but I've made a conscious thing that I like to be seen that way too, that I have a life outside of this and what I enjoy. Cause I think it brings other people to me. Like perfect examples. I meet people professionally all the time and go, Hey, you know, good restaurants to go to, let's go eat an expensive meal together. And that's more worth it to me. And I think that all of this is a risk reward. And I think Zach, you've decided that the risk of you saying some of these things and sometimes talking shit on a publicity campaign is worth the reward. Uh, I don't know if it's always worth the reward, but I, I seem to not be able to not do it. So I, I guess so. <laughs> well, I, and, and you can remove it from social media. Uh, I mean, you can put yourself in professional situations and I, I'm a pretty opinionated guy. And especially when it comes down to, 
you know, the artists and working on their behalf and being passionate about them and, and all of that. There's times that I probably say things to, to other people that, uh, you know, I hope they're within the professional realm, but you, you can choose how to carry yourself in any capacity within the business or otherwise. And, you know, part of, part of all of this is you, you, you get, Jesse, you have to be true to yourself. Um, I think that's an important thing. I don't think it makes a whole bunch of sense to completely suppress one part of your personality just for the sake of, you know, not worrying about getting yourself in trouble. Um, to switch gears a little bit, I guess, uh, Mike, you work, like we mentioned at the top of the show, you work with bands uh, like Refused, but then your company also represents, I, I would say, I guess, more current bands like Crown the Empire, Set It Off. Do Does your role when you interact with those widespread of bands um, change greatly? Uh, you know, you're closer to the age of a member of Refuse, but obviously you're you know older than uh, someone in Crown the Empire. The bands I work with are typically from the same age to four years older than me, something like that. But what, what, is, it, what is it like as you kind of uh, start to just being a different, you know, just different generational periods with some of the bands that you work with, do your roles change and how you interact? Yeah, I think, I mean, by and large, the, you know, I think the biggest challenge for those of us in the business is how do you relate and do all of the business side of things effectively, but also be able to turn around and relate to the artists themselves. And that can be a challenge sometimes because, you know, each artist is very different. It's not to say that people within the business aren't different, but, you know, the artists, you know, some can be really easy to deal with. Some can be a tad more difficult. But I think in regards to especially the developing artists, Zach, I like to see myself as a bit more of like a mentor at this point in my career. Um, you know, when I first started, I managed a band called Darkest Hour, who I still manage today. And, the guitar player, Mike, from that band is still one of my best friends. And we've had a very different relationship than I have had with many of the artists that I picked up later on. He and I are peers, more or less. I am a little bit older than him. but So we see things from this like very same level playing field, which can be beneficial, and it can also be detrimental. And the same thing with developing artists. We see things typically from a little bit different perspectives. But one of the things I, I hope, well, I like to pride myself on is I realize that the artist, no matter what level they're at, is the eyes and ears of the operation that's out on the road. And I really like to get feedback from them on just about anything and everything so we can incorporate that into the strategy of whatever we're doing to manage the band. Some bands, you know, we're, we're trying to, to grow um, other bands were trying to establish ourselves as a headliner, you know, any, any number of those things. I think that's a great point about the eyes and the ears. And I think that's really, uh, understated. I used to have to say the same thing with, I always saw myself in a managerial role as I did a lot of the marketing and coming up with the ideas, but I also said that the bands I worked with have to be out there in the field, also finding the stuff. And then we come up with a way to do what we see other people doing better. Yeah. Very good point. I mean, I, I truly try to view what we do as a team. I, I came up with this metaphor a long time ago where a, a band and a manage, 
you know, it's sort of like a basketball team, the team you're building around them and the band and the manager are kind of the co-captains. And then you've got your booking agent and your record label, which, you know, in this day and age, that's an ever changing um, consideration. And then the, so those are four players on the team. And then the, you know, the fifth is really a utility player. You're, you know, those are the people you're not talking to every single day. Uh, could be your merchandiser, although you do talk to them pretty frequently, especially when you're out on the road and doing your online stuff. But, you know, that's your attorney, your publicist, your business manager, you name it. And so to me, I came up with this because a long time ago when I was first doing the management, when I was first managing artists, I had a record label say to me, I got the band on this tour. Now it's your turn to step up. And I kind of said, it's, you know, I, I sort of said, well, you know, listen, you did get them on that tour, but we it, it's like we backed off once we got that tour and it's not like we could get another tour. And so I, I sort of started thinking about what that made sense. And I said, look, if we're on a basketball team and it's coming down to, sh- you know, shooting the last shot to win the game, which landing this tour, which at the time was Warp Tour for a developing band, that's like hitting, you know, a buzzer beater at the end of the at the end of the game. If the star player takes the shot, and makes it great. We won. If the star player doesn't take the shot and somebody else takes it and we score and win, it's the same result. And so everyone needs to be working together. You know, yes, people have their specialty roles, but if the if the center shoots a three-pointer because he's the guy that's open and gets the ball and it goes in, everybody's celebrating. Uh, agreed. I think that's also a really good way with any relationships to, to remember. It's like I think we see so many, whether it's, dating friendship or band relationships just within the band fail because people have an expectation that you did this and now you're owed something when really it is we're all doing things we should all consider that there is different roles always happening and sometimes those roles are going to shift where one person carries the other person's weight but hopefully then there's a symbiosis where other times that person's carrying other weights agreed wholeheartedly i mean and that's you know obviously part of the maturity that you've been through and been in relationships and so when i say having life experience having been through a number of relationships before i met my wife and even having to deal with you know the the expectations between her and me we've had to figure out those ways to look at things differently Um, which helps when I turn around and deal with the artists and deal with their inner struggles, which can be sometimes the hardest part of working with an artist. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I I feel like musicians often have like um, kind of fantasy trajectories and look at how like a certain band or a certain musician like got popular and then they try to emulate that. You post some like really inspiring stories of the trajectories you've had with certain artists. What are some like misconceptions you see in trajectories of how an artist is popular? Like, what do you see like when you first start with a baby band that they have an expect expectation of that seems to be really unrealistic? Yeah, I mean it's it, it's quite fascinating because some of them do have these expectations and some of them don't. And and I never want to like strip an aspiring artist of what they think they can achieve within a certain amount of time. But it's always so helpful to monitor the feedback to see if the world is paying attention in that same capacity. So, and that's where I think that breakdown can come is, Hey, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And the results aren't adding up. And so one of the things that I've said to many young artists, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, because as I've 
taken a long time to grow my company and still run into struggles all the time, you, you just can't, you can't speed up time. Things take a long time to develop. Again, because I seem to be the king of uh, the metaphor, it's, it's, it's like if you're going to grill some vegetables as a vegetarian, um, I'll be grilling vegetables. If you guys are meat eaters, you can, you can order up whatever you want. Not, you know, oddly enough, right before you hopped on Skype, Jesse was talking about how he had fired up his grill for the first time this weekend and would like me to come over and he can, we, I can use a separate side of his grill uh, to be meat free. And uh, <laughs> I guess we're all welcome together. Yeah, it's, it's true. I got a vegan chef living with me. I have to be accommodating. I like that. So, you know, the vegan chef can probably tell us if we're going to, to, you know, grill some vegetables, we should probably cut them up, put them in some marinade and let them sit for a while. And then once the grill comes on, put them on there on some sort of medium heat. So they're cooked to perfection and delicacy. So Zach and I can enjoy our, our vegetarian, you know, candlelight dinner (laughs) where, you know the other the other thing, and this is where some artists want it this way. They just you know they think, okay, I got the tools to to let you know the marinade is on really quickly. Let's turn the burner on as high as we can and see if we can get a, a bit of a flash in the pan. And that and the the hard part is there are always exceptions to the rule. And the I've tried to convey to the artists that comparing yourself to anyone else just isn't really effective. It, it, it's not to say you shouldn't have some awareness of what others are doing. As you said, Jesse, there's plenty of times that you can look at what someone else is doing. And if you know a trend is working or a strategy is working within marketing or anything else, you can emulate that. You can take that and make it better. But to say... I want to be just like them and, and have you, you could put in the exact same amount of work and in the exact same amount of time. And you'll almost always get a completely different result. There's so many little things. (laughs) It's impossible. It's nearly impossible to recreate anything with music just because none of the songs are the same. And that's a lot of the time, hopefully what it comes down to as well. And besides the decisions, Mike, when it comes down to, um, you know, I assume you've worked with some bands that you've maybe picked up within the last year. And then like you mentioned, Darkest Hour, how long have you been managing them for? Uh, Darkest Hour I started with, it was the first act I managed. That was about 2004. Okay. So over 10 years, um, you know, what are kind of your favorite points when you, when you work with a band? Is it those early developmental stages when they may be like a quote unquote baby band or is it? Is there not one thing that you necessarily prefer in, over the over the lifetime of of a band? And there's nothing more rewarding than you know watching all of your hard work come to fruition and having an artist at a more developed stage. But I do enjoy the I do enjoy the developmental stages, the very early stages of getting everything in line, working and focusing on the branding, trying to go in and work and figure out and find and leverage the opportunities, ensuring that, you know, they're making the best record possible. And that may be through, you know, having them speak to a number of producers and doing all of that stuff. And and again, when you have established artists, it doesn't mean that you're not still doing those things, but it is really cool to watch as things build and build and build. Um, so, yeah. Cool. 
I feel like I've given like many answers, and Zach's just like, "Cool." No, I, I, to I, me, I'm like, like I, you I'm know, like, is this is this the most boring thing you've ever done, Zach? I'm just thinking. <laughs> I'm just thinking about it compared to like where I, you know, all the bands I'm currently working with are in, you know, are zero to five years old, I guess. Um, yeah. And and it's all very. Uh, like, like you were, like we were just saying, like no band is the same, regardless if it's the same kind of music, if they do the same tours with or around each other, but they're all in the same process of like, we're, we're somewhere between A and B and we're not, we haven't yet come to like that third act yet as a band. It's all just very early development. And I enjoy, I enjoy some of it a lot. I recently picked up a band, um, called Sorority Noise, and they're in the process of releasing their second album, but kind of the first one that's getting maybe, hopefully, a wider uh, range of, you know, having a larger label and, and bigger and better press, whatever. And it's really exciting to try to take that to the next level. And, and I went through that experience with Knuckle Puck, and it was a blast. And I, I find this level to be very, very fun, but I'm, you know, like Knuckle Puck are gearing up to release their first album and do Warp Tour for the first time and then um, probably do a lot of touring again. And uh, that that will be a new phase I'm entering. It's curious to me because you've you've done the cycle a lot of times and I've never really even done the cycle once yet with my own band that I've managed. So it's a it's a curious difference for me. Well, and, and when I picked up Darkest Hour, they came to me, they were already a signed band. And then many of the artists that I picked up since then had been signed. So I was finding artists, artists were coming to me that had already signed to a record label. And, and so for the, about three or four or five years in, I started having artists get out of their deals and it allowed me for the first time to really go shopping, um, which ended up being a really exciting part to me was taking artists. And, and I think that's one of the things that I do like about the developing artists as well is it allows me to take something oftentimes that no one else has known about or discovered or actually put that stamp of approval on and go out and, and have those conversations with people and get other people really fired up about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool how many different uh, I guess little facets there are, you know, like the the getting the band to the label process or the this is the recording process or that that one big tour that you hope for. There, there's so many little parts of management that add up. It, it's fun and also stressful. <laughs> Completely. Uh, no, I mean, it's it's really never ending. And I think that's probably the stressful part. And, you know, you got to figure out the ways to uh, combat the stress because the the things that cause most people stress will be there all the time, no matter what. So, so with that, since you've obviously been through a lot of crises, uh, do you have any advice on how to handle them and how they, how to get better at handling them? So I think that's one of the real troubles people have early on. I know for me that like when first year I was producing records, maybe the first three, you know, if the Mesa Boogie blew up six songs into a full length, I'd be crying on the floor at a ball. And now I just look at it, I'm like, yeah, we'll get it repaired and we'll do some vocals now. We're good. Yeah, I think you realize what what you can control and what you can't control and when to stress over each respective thing. One of the challenges is, and I would imagine, Jesse, you, like, if an artist came in today and something blew up, they would probably have that same reaction. Yes. And so the difference is... Your your experience has led you to okay. There's an easy solution to this. It's you know, and it's usually the solution to a lot of problems. It's 
throw some money at it, go fix it, buy something new. And, you know, I will say this, it's, it's interesting when you think about the artists that you manage, many of them, the biggest problems come from money. It's you're trying to have this small business succeed and grow on, you know, incomes and expenses that never really end up in the same place. And so it's, in terms of crises and those sort of things, it's just, it's having gone through it and having the experience and, you know, having done some training within my own life, having seen a therapist at points in my life gives me the ability to understand the kinds of questions or ways that they would handle me coming to them with the crisis in my life. So again, that's when I talk about to me, having the totality of management is having some of this experience that allows you to handle those situations. Right. If they're, if they're worrying about it, you're also probably worried about it or have worried about it in a past situation. Like as recently as yesterday, for me, a band that I'm working with, um, they're, they're touring consistently for the first time now. And we have like a large merch bill because we're touring for six months and there's some stuff that we need to buy in a larger quantity because we're going to be using it for six months. And there's other stuff, which is just, we're ordering as many t-shirts as we'll need for this tour. But, you know, seeing a large bill when you're getting a small guarantee a night as one of an opener on a tour, it's like, it's a daunting thing when a band's first starting out and you always need and want to be responsible. But there's like, sometimes it's just a matter of explanation, I guess, in, in, in a situation like that. It, it can be, but it also can't be because sometimes people you know, who are drawn towards the artistic side. And again, I'm not saying everybody's like this, but some of them, especially at that young age and without that experience, don't really know how to manage the business. And even when I started managing, when, I mean, I started managing when I was 30 years old, I had been a tour manager for years before that had been in my own band, but I didn't understand exactly how to run a business. And I've had to learn that and teach myself that and work with other people within the industry so I would have that knowledge and understand that every small business in the entire world suffers from, you know, the, the issue of cash flow. And so, Zach, like you're saying, is you're, you're running this big bill up, but it doesn't mean that the cash isn't going to come. Presumably it will if they Presumably. sell it all, yeah. but yeah. there is that risk that it won't happen. But what's the alternative to print 200 shirts at a time, pay it, and then have this giant lag where you're giving up a whole bunch of income that could allow you to invest in your business and grow further. And so that's sort of where I think there's a disconnect sometimes. Bands just, it's not, it's not that they're ill-equipped. It's just that it, it takes some time for things to sink in. You can't just, you know, have a young artist who's saying, oh my God, we've got this giant merch bill and tell them, well, that's okay. You know, they might say, okay, well, this guy's got the experience to let me know it's okay. But they might also just have to go through it a few times and see that your strategy does work or doesn't, and then you're out of a job. <laughs> One of those things I think I see see now of, uh, like, you know, since obviously so many friends have kids, it's that thing. You can't make mistakes for your children, and uh, you can't, when the band is kind of your child, you can't, even though you're like, I've seen this mistake, they sometimes need to make that mistake because they just don't believe it. And that is a the thing. They have to go through it. They have to live it out sometimes to know that you're right or you're wrong. And sometimes you have to say, trust me, so we don't make this mistake. I've lived that one out already. But 
it's a tough one to get people to trust you with that. Mike, you manage not only bands, but also like uh, employees. Uh, when did you, how long did it take for you to start having other people work with you um, starting, you know, when you started managing 10 years ago? We probably ended up bringing our initial person on like a year or two in. Um, so, so pretty early, but it was, it was much different than it became. And, and we really started about five or six years ago with having a company of people who, you know, weren't, I guess, viewed as equals. And I, that's the wrong way to say it, but just weren't on the a different same, hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, the same professional level, right. if and you will, with was the that same out of, Was that out of... Yeah. Was that out of necessity of needing assistance or out of a desire to try to grow something more? A little bit. I mean, a little bit of both. It really happened right when social media became the, the way for a band to, at, at the early developmental stages, to define themselves and, and gain some traction and get ahead. Because until that point, I mean, the, you know, you probably understand from managing your artists and Jesse, I'm sure you know this, uh, but it's like essentially anything and everything that someone else on your team isn't doing falls into the hands of the band. And of course, if they aren't doing it, it falls into your hands. And so social media became this great tool for people to promote themselves and bands when they were first sitting at home and could sit up on MySpace all night and add friends. That was great. But the minute that they started going on tour and didn't have an internet connection and didn't have the time to sit up and promote themselves on MySpace all day and night, it required someone else to do it. And so we looked and said, and at the same time, labels were starting to shrink and responsibilities there weren't being handled. And so I started to look and said, I want to build a team that can truly serve a band, regardless of whether, you know, the, the, the members the other members of the team, meaning the label, the agent, the merch company, et cetera, can do exactly what I would like them to do. I have a, maybe a random question spurred off of that. Jesse and I, on our last episode, um, we talked about the, I, there was, there was, I, I think there was sort of like a groundswell of this feeling several, several years ago now, maybe five or so years ago that it was like, oh, the album's dead no radio anymore. We shouldn't even release an album. Maybe we'll only do EPs, blah, blah, blah. Like the music industry is crashing down, whatever. Um, you, you are still alive and working and having a successful career. And so are many bands new and old. Um, and that the conversation we had kind of spurred out of, um, brand new, maybe not releasing a full length album or something like that. And what it would mean for a band of that size to just release singles forever. Um, but part of what you were saying was, you started bringing on people when the music industry did start to shift a little, uh, that included social media stuff, but then also like the labels, the labels changing up how they ran. Um, do you, what do you think of the current kind of landscape of how, how you interact with labels and, and your needs of how maybe management have, has shifted as labels have kind of morphed over the past decade as well? Yeah. I, I, it's interesting because some of the labels still really employ a number of people that do help with the the growth of an artist. I will say I, I really like having a good label on the team. I am not 
so full of myself, though some people who listen to this might think differently. But I'm not so I, full I of myself. I think my, differently, certainly. <laughs> I'm not so full of myself to think that I'm the only person that knows each and every strategy. Uh, throughout some of the development of artists and, you know, it, we're in the middle of setting up this entire refused record and album cycle. It has been such a treat to go to someone else, that being Epitaph, and interact with them and their employees who have a ton of experience and a, t- and a wealth of knowledge to say, okay, how, how should we do this? And thankfully, you know, we don't always agree but when we disagree, we come to a resolution that makes sense. And so I really like the added value that a label can bring to a team. That said, you are giving up a pretty significant component of the income that you might be able to derive by doing things another way. On the developmental side in that stage, I really do see the label as like a validator there's so much noise and so much competition that having people sign on, whether they be a manager, whether they be a label, whether they be an agent, gives the other people that are doing this all day, not you know, all. It's funny. I started echoing. So, yeah. Um, gives the people that are doing this all day and night to a way to look and say, oh yeah, all right, well that band's managed by such and such person. They're at such and such label. That agent does them. Again, there's exceptions to every rule. There's plenty of people that don't need that for whatever reasons. There are all of these other tools. And there's plenty of people that have that. And it doesn't really seem to get them any steps further otherwise. Uh, So you, I'd heard you talk with Finn McKenzie on the Creative Live podcast. So you with Ice Nine Kills had done a crowdfunding campaign because you talked about how they weren't finding a good home for themselves on a label yet. One of the things we do often discuss in the podcast is how this scene seems to be a little bit more behind others. And you talked about like the validator of a label that like we're, I think compared to other scenes, we're still behind in that bands can't really get past a certain point without getting a label involved. And that validator happens. Um, But then you were also just kind of talking about how maybe some bands after they've had that validator can maybe go on their own and be successful have you been seeing any change in that? And like, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's a fair point. I also think that, you know, the scene that we're in, you know, for better or worse, has always been one of those that the brands of the labels typically have been just as significant as the breakthrough artists that they're on. And that's what, you know, that revolving cycle is what helps the labels become established and or gives the bands a leg up. And, you know, if we're talking about pop music or dance music or whatever, I don't think the labels have, especially in the last couple decades, have really been a deciding factor in that, the, the brands themselves. But I'm sure the team behind the label has been, you know, an intricate part of allowing those, those acts to grow. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think it is going to continue to change. And I think that it's nice when you have an artist who has reached a level that doesn't need that validation. I think there's so much that can be done with them. And I think it's really exciting in regards to all that. Did that answer the question or did I just give a lot of... That was actually great. 
Or, or did I just give a very long-winded um, answer as Zach no, you're, does you're, I like to do? It. You're doing great. <laughs> so so speaking of your long-winded answers, you are teaching at, as you mentioned, Kevin Lyman's, um, is it Think TEI or are you guys the Entertainment Institute? Yeah, it's the Entertainment Institute, but the, the website cleverly is thinktei.com. Gotcha. Gotcha. So tell us all about that. So my relationship has kind of come up, uh, come twofold. One is I've known Kevin for years. I've had bands on the Warp Tour for a number of years. Even tour managed on the Warp Tour for three weeks in 2003. But in addition, Matt Halpern, who's one of the founders as well, who drums in the band Periphery, I was very excited and supportive of his previous company, Band Happy. Great, great company. I remember when he started doing that. That was such a great idea. And for me, as a manager of developing artists, one of the biggest challenges is, again, cash flow. So you'd have artists that would come home, and if they were capable of paying all of their bills at the very end, they typically weren't able to pay themselves. And that becomes a problem, especially when you're someone who's making money, whether the individual members are making money or not. And again, there's exceptions to every rule, but you know, as a whole, it can be such a challenge to provide the service. The agent provides a service, the merchandise company provides goods, you name it. And they all end up getting paid. And the artist says, well, what about me? And as an entrepreneur and a business owner, yeah, you're typically the last person to get paid. I pay my employees, I pay my rent, I pay all these things, and at the end, you know, at the end of whatever time period I choose, I look and say, okay, here's what's left over for me. But part of the beauty in that is you're building something, you're building something that you own. And it's the same for bands. So when Matt came up with the idea for Band Happier, when it was first presented to me, I was like, dude, this is amazing. You're telling me that you and, and again, his band Periphery, all very technically proficient players, you can go around and teach lessons on the road and make money aside from you know this little band business? Amazing. I'm in. Truly innovative idea. I support you wholeheartedly. Oh, and then when you're actually home and, you know, you're not spending time working on the record or whatever, you can teach lessons to people online and make money that way. You better believe it. I was like really excited about it. And though I never had a truly formal relationship with them, um, I, I thought it was something that was fantastic because it was creating a new stream of revenue um, or at least making it more accessible. And so with the Entertainment Institute, uh, though I'm not formally, I'm not an owner um, in any capacity, it's, it's Kevin Matten and another partner, Jen Kellogg, I really believe in what they're doing and the opportunities that they're providing for artists so we can avoid that situation where the artists are broke, as well as give younger people who are looking for some advice on the business an opportunity that doesn't require a four-year school um, or a short stint at the Musicians Institute. And my reasoning for that is I really, I want a better business. I did, and, you know, I'm sure I'm guilty of this with people who are, you know, far more experienced than I am. But I find a lot of times with these quote-unquote younger managers that are coming in and have spent time with bands and figured out social media, they don't necessarily understand the the entire scope of 
the professionalism and what it takes to be a manager. And so a lot of times for the, for the workshops that I'm doing, I'm trying to provide that information to them. You're just coming at me. Well, I'm not coming at you. We've had a conversation and, and you've done something that I, I commend and admire. You've taken yourself as a young person who is in that role that I've been describing and you've partnered with someone else to be a part of a larger organization where if the shit really does hit the fan and you're not capable enough to handle it or just need some assistance, you can go to somebody who's more like me. They've been doing this a long time. They've got the experience and they can weigh in on that. I think it's very valuable. Um, I, 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 through everything I've done since 16, like I've always had some sort of mentor at different points in my career. And I don't know when or if that will ever stop, but I, uh, it would be, it would still be, you know, after just even a few years, it would still be very hard for me to do my job, maybe not on a daily basis, but definitely on a monthly basis without being able to ask for help or advice or past experience markers. Um, and I think like, like you said, actually to the, to the class that you guested in on, um, it's just, it's in a lot of ways, it would be reckless, I think for someone, you know, my age, um, that's potentially in control or in, in, uh, you know, in responsibility of anywhere from zero to 20, like, uh, men or women, right. Without any kind of guidance, without ever having done it before. It's, uh, Yeah. And don't get, don't get me wrong. Again, there's exceptions to every one of these rules. Most of my advice comes from my own experience. So when I was 20, 21, 22, 23, there's probably 80 plus percent of management that I could have done. It's that last 20% that, you know, I'm still trying to, to better myself with much of it. But it's, it's that stuff that sometimes is really what makes the other 80% actually function and grow the various artists um, or handle those difficult situations of which we've already talked about a few of them. Yeah. I, um, you know, I obviously do the website and management and two labels and these two podcasts. Um, and that, those are a lot of things that I often get grief about doing so many things from the people I work with. Um, you are a manager. You now also have a label, and you've you've been digging really over the last year into a lot of this education stuff. Um, is that trying on you? Uh, definitely. You know, I think uh, one of the things that I've always enjoyed is being busy. I'm a person who thrives more on having engagement and having responsibilities than not, and therefore. Uh, Taking on more and more things has made me busier, but part of it has always been, and especially with managing artists, I, I like to, to say, and, and hopefully this is true uh, without certainty, is that if I make a commitment to manage the artist, they get what they need out of a manager. Now, sometimes that's from a member of my team who is in my office or, you know, sometimes not in my office and we're working together and working closely on all of that. But I, even as I grow my own roster of bands, I always have to look to myself and say, can I serve this artist the way that they deserve to be served? Now, of course, there's always going to be differing opinions. Sometimes, especially a lot of young artists, they don't, they don't necessarily know exactly how they should be served. Again, sometimes they pull what Jesse's saying and they look to, to others 
and say, well, you know, that person's manager did X, Y, and Z. They neglect to look at that you're doing A, B, and C that maybe their manager isn't doing. And we have this thing to look at what's missing as opposed to what's there mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. But yeah, it definitely can be a challenge um, in order to do multiple things. Thankfully, I like to think in most of the extra endeavors, I have a partner that allows me to do things to the best of my ability in those cases while simultaneously being able to continue to do what is really the core of my business, which is manage. I think that's, those are great points. I think one of the things that's very sad about this is, so I've been reading um, the Elon Musk book recently, and you know, the guy is some ways saving the world. Um, you know, he's got a solar city, he's got SpaceX, he's got Tesla, he's trying, doing all these crazy, crazy, crazy businesses with many facets. And I think people don't always get that there's a lot of people that are only able to handle doing one or two things because maybe they put more time to their family. Maybe they just don't have that aptitude to get a lot of things done at once. And I had a trying thing. Like when I was managing a couple bands at once, still being a record producer, writing a book, doing a blog, the bands would constantly be like, well, maybe you should do a little less of that and more for me. And I would always have to say, it's like, why don't you talk to your friends' bands and see how many hours their manager puts in? And please tell me if I'm doing less because I doubt it. It's just that I can do a lot at once. Well, also, what of those things that you're doing actually help and benefit the band? Mm-hmm. You know, Zach might be a perfect example of that. Had he just been some snot-nosed kid in Philly that managed a bunch of bands, maybe I would have you know treated him a, a little differently or not had the inclination to want to get to know him. I do kind of pride myself. I really like to get you know, to reach out to other people within the industry. I, I do feel like we're all here trying to do the same thing. So if somebody's doing it, I, I, I like to, to know them. But the fact that I'd heard him on the podcast, the fact that he runs his website, that he does all of those things actually made it so I wanted to engage with him more than not. And ultimately, even though our worlds aren't completely overlapping, that helps the artist that he's managing in some capacity. It's true. I think that is something that's lost that you doing uh, a lot of podcast appearances, all these things that I've been telling this a lot as advice for younger people is that, you know, getting out there, blogging, communicating with people really is an invitation. Like I've made so many great relationships from this podcast and from the blogs I've written over the years that have opened up so many different opportunities for even just my casual friends to hook them up with. And I think that, Maybe that is a lost site that gets sometimes overlooked by a band when they're just thinking about, well, I'd really like you to get me that endorsement with that drum company. Yeah. And again, it's always going to be somewhat of a challenge. I think it's how confident you are and whether you're actually doing those things and the right things versus how they're going to perceive it. And sometimes, you know, reality and perception are completely off and what do you do to figure out that solution? Sometimes there is no solution. The solution is, okay, if you like the grass, the greener grass uh, on stage left, go for it. You know, I will say some of my very most rewarding management experiences, and I probably have at least a handful, maybe one or two less, are with artists who have been through a shitty experience with either a manager, a record label, you name it. 
And it's sort of like getting a, a rescue dog. They are going to love you and be all over you because you treat them the way that they want to be treated. Whereas sometimes if you get a brand new puppy, you know, they bark and run around and are just like, you know, not that I can think like a puppy. Um, <laughs> but if I could, you know, they might say, well, dude, yeah, I mean, you're any old Joe could have come in and picked me up, but I'm so beautiful. You know, I'm all this. And I have had those instances where, you know, there's artists who are essentially like, well, we're the ones that are doing this. And believe me, I will always give credit to the artists because they are the ones that are doing it. It, But it's, and that's where you've got to understand that team and symbiosis that you talk about where they're doing it along with our skill set that hopefully puts them in a position far better than they would have been with, you know, on their own and hopefully better than with anyone else. Agreed. Agreed. But I will say, you know, there's so like on the level of, of managers that I am. And of course, there's such other tiers further along. It's having some self-awareness and saying, OK, you know. Zach's boss, who I know well, I don't know if you call her your boss, Zach, but, you know, the woman of which Zach holds an email address, like, I know her very well. She's a she's just as capable as I am. You know, she probably has some strengths that are a little bit different, maybe some weaknesses that, that you know, I don't have. But ultimately, if a band is managed by her or they're managed by our company, they're probably going to have a very similar trajectory. And so oftentimes what I see is a lot of times artists, they get a little disillusioned with where they are. They run to another person of the exact same size or the exact same stature, and they end up having the exact same trajectory. You know, I don't know if you guys saw that article with Lord. Oh, about the firing of the manager. Yeah, and I thought it was a very could, interesting could, 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 point. Could, you, could you, you spell it out to everybody who didn't so we could discuss this? I mean, if I recall, my recollection was it was a Billboard article. Or no, Guardian. I think it was the Guardian mm-hmm. yeah, in the yeah, UK that said essentially, you know, they were saying that Lord had fired her manager and that they'd seen a lot of other cases where the young artists that had been discovered by someone, someone had been with them through thick and thin and really had that personal engagement and attachment as well as the professional side. And once they left, that initial person who had that fire of, hey, we're developing this together, and they went to someone else who presumably was looking at it more for, cool, here's this amazingly popular artist, we can make some money. The, the relationship had changed, and therefore the outcome of the career had changed for the worse, not the better. Yes. And so I have a, like a personal experience of this with me, and I think it's a very interesting thing. And, um, so like I have a lot of female friends, and, I, and they're all, well, yeah, you do, like, Jesse. Woo! Not, not that that way. I mean, oh, friends, sorry. just friends, just friends, just. just. Anyway, um, <laughs> so like they'll be like, "Oh my god, my boyfriend, this band's gonna get famous." I'm like, "Yeah, that's the worst time to date somebody because somebody when they first get success and fame goes through a radical changing of their brain chemistry, and it's a place. I think as a manager, I think one of the most interesting things is. Were you the quality control person who is saying, no, don't get ahead of yourself? And then do they turn on you at some point and say, no, I am this great. I am believing my own hype. Or do they stay modest? And I think that that's one of the hardest jobs. I mean, one of the falling outs I had with a band I used to manage was when they got popular, they were all of a sudden around one of their heroes who told them every easy answer they wanted to hear. And I was sitting there saying the hard answers still and saying, no, it's not that simple. 
this person knows a music business from 2000, not 2012. And it shattered our relationship. And I think that that is a difficult thing to navigate because it's every instance. But as a manager, you also have to learn how to offset that there is going to be people who blow smoke up your ass endlessly. And that's not usually the person who's giving you a hard answer. I think you're exactly right. And one of the things that I like to do, um, especially, you know, I'm a person who has has, uh, those stories of, yeah, I managed such and such. And then they became, you know, much more popular down the line. And, you know, there's always going to be people and the same reason that I get clients, you know, my bands recommend me oftentimes to other clients. Why? Because they're pleased and elated with the job that I do. But I'll be the first to say, look, I've had plenty of failures as well. You don't come in here and I sprinkle magic dust on you and all of a sudden you become, you know, a huge artist, you know, defining whatever a huge artist is. Um, you know, I very realistically look at myself and say, great. When I put in the hard work and the artist has also put in the hard work, we've made it to the finish line. If I'm dragging an artist over the finish line, they're not willing to put in the same dedication that, that we are as a company. Oftentimes, you know, there's, there are failures in, in that regard. So does that make okay. sense? No, I like that a lot. Actually, that's a great thought. Um, so you did hit on work ethic. There was something that you said also on the podcast you did with Finn McKenty that I, I loved that I've always thought but never put a phrase to it, which is behind every great company, there's a hardcore kid busting his <laughs> I was going to say, is Finn McKenty paying you advertising dollars just as I, as I hope uh, Zach, Zach, Zach's company uh, pays, pays you advertising dollars? Finn and, I, <laughs> Finn and I have a deep romance going that's, that's very old now. Speaking of which, I don't know if I told you this, but the last time I hung out with Zach, I ma- I said that I imagined you to be like this giant dude with like this massive beard because you- your voice is so like deep and nasally. <laughs> uh, but he informed me that that's not the case. You, you know, most bands, when they talk to me on the phone before I produce our rec- record, they come to the studio, they're like, wow, we thought you were going to be 300 pounds with like uh, Captain Lou Albano type of look. Totally. I guess the, o- the only thing that would make me think that it wouldn't be that way as you're not breathing and panting heavily. Like <laughs> many, many of the other giant men I know, uh, and women, thankfully that is not the case. So when you, you, you encounter the, uh, you know, sadly I got this voice when I was still 15 years old and under a hundred pounds. So, um, not so much, but, but, um, I wanted to ask you what, are the traits that you've seen in that and you and I came from a similar scene of these noisy hardcore bands of the nineties. Um, I'm curious to hear what you see in those traits and have you seen tangible traits that have made people into being that? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back as, as crazy as it is. I mean, we talked about college and, you know, no matter what, you're just in this kind of learning environment. So the hardcore scene, whether you're part of the noisy hardcore scene, the, you know, youth crew hardcore scene, whatever it may be, I think that the people that are in there and are the participants, whether they be a band member, whether they be a person that ran a label, they did a zine, they put on shows, all of these things, you're dealing with such limited resources that you have to become incredibly resourceful. And so it's that resourcefulness and the desire to do things and get them done that are the traits that I think bode very well for all the other places in the industry. 
again, you can learn these things plenty of other places. Mm-hmm. It's just that it happens to be that that is part of music and we then take it and we've stubbornly stuck with it and figure, you know, a, we figured out ways to survive. You know, I, the first many years of my business and even today, I don't, I don't get to run this like a normal business that has, you know, investors that have come in and put a bunch of cash in or, you know, millions of dollars of sales. I've had to take very limited resources and build out a company and grow artists. That's because for years and years and years in the hardcore scene, that's exactly what we did mm-hmm. all day, every day. I presume it's probably the same with you. You figured out how to survive in the producer world, uh, be, you know, which a lot of producers haven't been able to make that jump. Some of the ones that were immensely successful and have royalties still coming in, no problem. But many of them have been replaced by younger people that, you know, understand the technology um, and they, the expectations are just a little bit, uh, you know, different in line a little bit differently. Yeah, I think I think your 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 point about you figure out how to be resourceful is a, a very good one. It's just that I think like one of the things I often say is that like punk rock is a lot of education. You don't have to ask someone to do something and that you can just start doing it today and you're gonna be bad at it. People are gonna kinda accept that there's a few people who will be into it, and as you get better, more and more people will be into it and you will eventually scale up. I think that's one of the greatest lessons is that there's so many people who are afraid to be terrible at first and we were almost allowed to be you know i look back at some of those bands that we were i'm sure at the same shows of maybe in different places back then but yeah they were arguably unlistenable now by today's standards and but there were some of us who enjoyed them and they got better and better and some of them became legendary like refused it sounds like we need to get Zach on a podcast playing these bands and see what he thinks of. Uh, <laughs> oh of boy! All of that. Oh yeah! <laughs> you know, you, you know that one would be really, really scary. I, I would love for him to hear some vocals from Frail. De- oh, I might have almost. to decline that one. Yeah, I, I, I would at least like to hear him. You know, hear his opinion on things like Lifetime or. Uh, you know, Kid Dynamite, some mm. of the more accessible stuff. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it. of those bands. What label were they on? <laughs> oh, it's like setting it up for you to smash it home, Zach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Zach, well, do you have any more questions? I'm okay. I think this has been a really enjoyable conversation with a did lot you of not, good uh, Did you points. not get the, the tweet from your, your guy Eastbound to whatever oh, his yeah. name is? Oh, yeah. We were supposed to ask about good hair, weren't we? It's funny because he was. Uh, actually, I'll let oh, you I ask the that. question and then I can explain. Okay. Explain um, the relationship. Do you know this person? At he, all? he tweets at us. He tweets at us. Well, uh, I know him. Okay, actually, we, 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 I figured. So, so, so Zach asked the question, then we'll get the back. From uh, Eastbound to FKD, yo, please ask Mike. <laughs> please ask Mike who has the better hair, head of hair these days. Mike, I don't know how to say his last name. Uh, fight, feet, fight, like feet. Yeah. Steve That's A-O-K. a new one. <laughs> well, what do you think, Zach? I, uh, I, I don't think Steve, I don't know if, uh, Ioki has hair. Dude, are you kidding me with those sweet cornrows that he's been rocking or like his entire imagery of his nice long <laughs> quaff hanging down below his shoulders? You, do you know who Steve Aoki is? I, I do. I don't know do, much that, of the, him. Do you, so do you know the story that he was a very prominent hardcore kid? I did know this and I know that Mike is friends with him. 
And the gentleman who's asking you all these questions lived in the pickle patch, which is where Steve Aoki and I like to uh, have our moments in fame overlap when we were putting on, you know, shows for many artists. Maybe you've heard of some of these, Zach. Uh, the Promise Ring. Really coming at me now. I just, really just going for it. <laughs> it's too much fun because you accept it so well. I, but, uh, you, that's what you think. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to finish a bottle of wine now. <laughs> um, but isn't that every night for you? That's a lot of them. Yeah. Well, Jesse, Jesse, <laughs> Jesse rubbed off on me. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't surprise me. Um, anyways, I thought it was funny because the gentleman that uh, continues to ask these questions, I, before he asked this one, uh, and this is the third one that I've heard him ask. And the first time that he asked it, which was about the knuckle puck shirts, wasn't it, Zach, about yes, the sizing yes. of them? Yes. I was laughing because, you know, here's this mid-40s adult who – Respectfully, so is still out there going to the shows, enjoying enjoying the pop punk. You're, you're blowing you're blowing up his spot, man. What if he wanted to? What if he just wanted to like ensue with questions of uh, anonymity to us? No one's safe from the collateral damage that comes with inviting me onto a podcast, Zach. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Thanks. Uh, do we have any recommendations? I don't know. What, Mike, what would you like to uh, what would you like to push onto the world? I would like to do nothing other than push. No, I, I don't. I mean, obviously, I'll promote the companies that I represent. Fight Records, P H Y T E Zach, which I probably don't have a website. You probably can't get any of the material anywhere. But the beauty the beauty that is the internet uh, will allow you to at least explore such beautiful titles as botch the John Birch conspiracy theory um, and good, clean fun. Who shares wins? I, I, good, I, clean I, fun. I, I, I loved all the, loved all these records. Yeah. I, I thought we would be listening to uh, some good, clean fun. Zach really enjoyed the college bit. I know <laughs> it was very funny to me. And as much yes. as I would like to take credit for all of it, my best friend, Mr. Issa of good, clean fun is the true genius behind it and allowed me to, to accompany him around the world because I was good at things like logistics and booking tours, <laughs> which oddly enough, that's, you know, part of the skill set of how I ended up here and what I'm doing. Uh, but no, in addition, outer loop management, our website, outer loop, outer loop management.com. It's also outer loop records.com. The stuff I'm doing with the entertainment Institute, think tei.com. And then well, congratulations on your big sale to, um, bicycle Concord bicycle music. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I just calling you in from, uh, the yacht, which uh, the yeah. helicopter's landing very soon, so it might <laughs> okay. it might get a little. You're taking off. It might, yeah, it you, might you get a little loud. Um, but you know, everything everything has its uh, has its pros and cons. <laughs> well, uh, thank everyone for listening. Um, this Zach, has been Zach, a really. You didn't do recommendations. Oh, I don't. I just I don't like anything. I'm trying to graduate. Oh, okay. Can I graduate? Uh, I'm going to recommend the podcast tomorrow. Oh, I listened to that today. <laughs> it's really, really... I listened to all the episodes over the weekend. Oddly enough, that, okay. that same sequence, when I was really young, uh, mm -hmm. I recall this memory of the Today Show, and they would always say, we'll see you tomorrow on Today. And for the mm -hmm. longest time, I was like, 
I got no clue how that works. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, which I kind of just buried myself in terms of young intelligence, but it just proves kids if you stay in school, become a hardcore kid, and have a lot of stubbornness, you too might end up as the CEO of a management company. Thank you all for listening to Off the Record this week. It was a lot of fun, and we'll be back next week as always. You can keep up with us at offtherecord.fm, and uh, we'll be back soon. <laughs>